Now, First John chapter four in your Bibles tonight. First John chapter four. While you're finding your way there, just a couple of reminders about a church event things that are coming up. Tomorrow we have our Memorial Day picnic right down the road at, on the same street here, Booth Memorial Park. And so um, I'm excited about this. I think this is something the church has been doing for 20, 30 years. This will be my first one, so I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have it rain or shine. I'm hoping it doesn't rain uh, because we have an adult softball lined up. And Brother JR back here has been smack-talking me about uh, how he's going to beat me real bad. So I'm looking forward to the challenge, Brother JR. So, uh, But regardless, we're going to have a good time. And um, uh, So come, if you signed up for that, come. If you haven't signed up for it, get in the back and... Put your name down uh, as to bring a cider or dessert, and we'll have a good time with that. Also, uh, beginning tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., um, the church building will be open, the second floor there. And so if you're going to bring items for our church's tag sale uh, that will be going on this coming Saturday, you can drop those off on your way to the picnic, and we'll be receiving things all week long. So just keep those things in mind. First John chapter 4, let's stand for the reading of God's Word this evening. We're going to be reading from verse 7 down through verse 11. The Bible says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Tonight I want to preach a very, very simple sermon entitled this, Loving My Lord, Loving His Labor. Loving My Lord, Loving His Labor. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight as we open the the Bible in this book and we look uh, very closely at um, some very valuable or even some very important truths. God, I pray that you would help drive home to us. Uh, just exactly what it is the, uh, that, that keeps us going in the Christian life. And Lord, the motivation, uh, Lord, even when things get tough and ministries that we're working are not going our way, and Lord, life has us weary and worn down, I pray that tonight's sermon would serve as a good reminder as to why it is we're to labor in your fields, why it is we're to do your work. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, send a fresh understanding of just how much you love us. And Lord, how important your labor is through the preaching tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. This morning when I was um, promoing the sermon for tonight, I mentioned that, uh, uh, that the sermon tonight would most closely represent uh, my heartbeat for the church. But beyond just my heartbeat as a Christian man, the mechanism that makes my heart beat for the Lord. And I was sitting up here next to Brother Verone a few minutes ago, and he said, Pastor, if we haven't already figured out your heartbeat, I'm excited to hear what it is. And I said, well, this isn't just so much my heartbeat. I think that's been conveyed over the last year, but this is what keeps me going for the Lord. And I believe this ought to be the thing that keeps every Christian going for the Lord. You say, well, Pastor, what is it? It's simply this. It's a true understanding of just how much God loves me. The deeper you understand the love of God to you, the better you can function in the Christian life. I believe that every Christian that lives selfishly for his or herself does so because he does not or she does not truly understand the love of God. 
Every Christian that refuses to share their faith with those around them do so because they do not truly understand the love of God. Every Christian that cannot forgive those that have hurt them struggle with this because they do not truly understand the love of God. There's a little four-year-old girl named Martha who was hugging a doll in her pudgy little arms, had a doll under each arm, looking wistfully up at her mother, and she said, Mama, I love them and love them and love them, but they never love me back. I love them and love them and love them, but they never love me back. Boy, I don't want God to say, I love him and love him and love him. And he just never loves me back. I shared that with Angela last night. And I told her, I said, maybe after that illustration, I ought to just give an altar call. Because that's a pretty convicting thought that God can pour down his love all over us every single day. And we absorb it, but then we don't give it. We absorb it, but then we disobey. We absorb it, but then we don't follow His command and leading in our lives. It is said that a young man's, uh, the, 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 the pastor, the, the son of a pastor, who was a young man, uh, came to his father with a question. He said, Papa, what do the words cherubim and seraphim mean? The pastor took time to tell his son, the little questionnaire, that cherubim was a Hebrew, mead, a Hebrew word that meant knowledge, and the word seraphim meant or stood for flame. And he continued to explain uh, that commonly the cherubim angels uh, excelled in knowledge and the seraphim angels excelled in their love for God. That little boy looked up his dad, he said, well then dad, I hope that when I die, and again, he didn't have his doctrinal straight here, but he said, I hope when I die, I become a seraphim because I'd rather love God than to know everything. I'd rather love God than to know everything. Now, you're not going to become an angel when you die, regardless of what Looney Tunes taught you as a kid. Uh, you're not going to become an angel when you die. But I can tell you this, is that I'm with this boy. I would rather love God with all my heart than be, have a head that's filled with knowledge. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that knowledge puffeth up. Knowledge puffeth up. I would rather have a heart full of charity and be dumb as a brick then be filled with knowledge and walk around knowing everything. I read uh, this week about uh, Mr. Ford being interviewed by this paper. And the purpose of the interview, you know how some of these interviews are slanted in a particular direction. They're trying to show up the, the interviewee. And uh, he was asking, well, do you know this tri- trivial fact? And do you know this fact? And it was something that the average Joe would have known. And here Mr. Ford, a successful entrepreneur, having invented uh, the Ford Motor Company, didn't know the answers to the questions. And finally he got fed up and he said, listen, I can find any old man who knows those things. I don't need to know those things. And I'm here today to tell you that knowledge is great as long as it doesn't puff up and you can have knowledge. Give me a heart that truly understands the love of God and give me a heart that wants to love God back. This evening, I propose that Christians will fail. uh, Christians who fail to give themselves over wholeheartedly to the Lord do so because they have not allowed the love of God to reach deep down into the inner core of their hearts and deeply affect them. I propose that Christians who have grown weary in their service and and are tempted to quit 
their role in their service for the Lord. They do this because somewhere along the way, they quit experiencing the love of God to them and the love of God through them. Tonight, I have two main points, and under each of the two points, we'll look at an A, B, C, and a D. A, B, C, and D under each point, so you kind of understand the direction that we're going here with the message. Let's dive right in as we look at this powerful truth of, of, of loving my Lord and loving His labor. Point number one of the message is simply this. Number one, loving my Lord. Loving my Lord. 1 John 4.19, you're in 1 John 4 there, look down at verse 19, it's a verse we're all familiar with. We love Him, why? Because He first loved us. You didn't love God just on your own. Listen, uh, until you truly understood how deep God loved you, you could not love Him back. Let me make this statement. To the degree that you understand your sin... And to the degree you understand how hard it was for God to love you, to that same degree you'll be able to love God back. Letter A under point number one is this, my sin. uh, Turn over to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. We're all familiar with verse 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. We're all familiar with that verse. Look at verse 8, the verse before it. It says there, if we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, I don't know that there's a person in the room who would say, Pastor, I'm sinless. I don't think we'd find anybody that way. I think back to another ministry I served in. I had a a couple of lawyers who did a lot of pro bono work in the Hispanic community. They wanted to come into our church building. They wanted to teach English to the Hispanic community abroad. I was a Spanish pastor of the church there. and They wanted to come in. And so Pastor King, uh, my my pastor, had sent them to me to meet with me. And obviously before you're going to turn a room over in your church to people, you want to know that they're saved and that they go to a good church, a like-minded church. And I begin to get into the gospel and why they admit, while they admitted they had sinned, they would not admit that their sin was bad enough to send them to hell. And I remember those two lawyers were so offended at the truth that sinners in their sin go to hell that they got up and they stormed out of my office just as offended as could be. You're here tonight and you might not, I don't know that there's a person that would say they're sinless, but I will say this, I think we lose proper perspective on just how sinful we really are. Turn over with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Most of the message will be in 1 John, so don't lose your place there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9. Here Paul is addressing a very carnal church and he's reminding them that you don't need to live in sin because you have been sanctified, you have been justified from that sin and God's called you to a a more cleaned up lifestyle. And Paul gives a very explicit list of sin. And beginning in verse 9, the Bible says there, Now uh, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul here is telling the church of Corinth, he's saying, you were these things, but now you've been washed now by the blood of God. Now you're saved. 
Christian, let me just remind you who you are in your base state. You're a filthy, rotten sinner that is capable of any sin that any human being can commit. In church, and we're all polished up. I should have wore a gold tie tonight, guys. I didn't get the memo. Well, we come to church, we're all polished up, we got our suits on, we got our, our, our nice dresses on. And listen, I'm all about for putting your, your best foot first when you come to church and looking sharp. And we, we're, we, we know the lingo, we know the talk, but who are you in private when no one's around? Can I tell you who you are? You're a sinner. You're a sinner. Now, you may be a saved sinner, and God doesn't see that sin when He looks through the, 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 the stained glasses of Christ. But you're a sinner. Can I remind you? Can I remind you that God hates? He deplores your sin. He hates it. He hates my sin. You see, I can't truly understand how much God loves me until I first understand how sinful I am. I think the reason why a lot of people have a tough time loving God back is because they just truly haven't accepted how sinful they are. They don't understand how low they are with their sin and how much God had to love them to save them from that sin. And we're going to get into deeper, a a, a, a more complete thought here in a minute. But I don't want to just race right past this point without helping you understand that God hates your sin. He hates it. He hates everything about it. You know what God sees when He sees sin? He sees His Son nailed to a tree. And oh, He cringes to think that His only begotten Son would be taken And nailed to a tree. And that those sins would be placed on him. Tonight, before we move on with the message, I just ask you to stop. Just stop for just a moment. And just realize that in your natural state, you're covetous. Your natural state, you're lascivious. In your natural base state, you're covetous. You're you're a drunkard. You're a reviler. You're an extortioner. say, well, I've never done some of those things. If it weren't for the grace of God, there go I. And at the very least, you're a liar, just like me. Letter B, we see his sacrifice. Look back with me in 1 John chapter 4. Look at verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him, here in His love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I don't know that this conversation happened, but if you'll indulge me for a minute, God creates Adam and Eve and He puts them in the, uh, in the Garden of Eden, makes them sinless. Boy, they enjoy just paradise on earth, just just a perfect state. They, 
they're, they enjoy each other as husband and wife with no bickering and arguing. No fighting, no temper tantrums, no name calling. They enjoy the nature with no weeds and no thorns and no sweat. They, uh, they, they take care of this garden. They enjoy uh, a paradise on earth. And then along comes the serpent and deceives Eve. And then Adam chooses his sin and mankind falls. Mankind falls. And I don't know if this following conversation took place, but it very well could have. God the Father looks at God the Son and He says, what are we going to do? God the Father says, I told them that the day they eat the fruit, that they would die. God the Son says, but you love them, don't you? You don't want to kill them, do you? God the Father says, no, I don't. I want restoration. I want fellowship again. But I must keep my word. God the Son says, okay, all right. How about I go down to earth? I go down to earth through the seed of Eve. And I become one of them. And I become their sin and I suffer your wrath. God the Father may have looked at God the Son and said, you do that? You do that to restore my creation back to me? There's a story about a man named Abraham Benninger. He was a Swiss boy from Zurich and he came with his parents to this country on the same ship that brought John Wesley. The father and mother of the lad both died on board the ship on voyage and they were buried at sea. This young boy stepped alone from the gangway onto a strange continent where there was not a single familiar face. When he had grown to manhood, he asked to be sent to tell the story of the cross to the Africans on the island of St. Thomas. He had heard of their great misery and degradation there on the island. When Mr. Bittinger arrived at the island, he learned that it was against the law for any person but a slave to preach to the slaves. The, plant, the, the, uh, the policy of the planters to keep the Africans in ignorance, the purpose of it was to keep the Africans in ignorance and superstition. Shortly after, uh, after this, the governor of St. Thomas received a letter signed uh, Abraham Benninger, in which the writer begged urgent, or urgently to become a slave for the rest of his life. He promised to serve as a slave faithfully, uh, uh, provided he could give his leisure time to preaching to his fellow slaves. The governor sent the letter to the king of Denmark, who was so touched by the letter, he sent an edict empowering Mr. Bittinger to tell the story of the Messiah when and where he chose to both black and white, bond or free. He was willing to become a slave. He was willing to go down and become one of them in order to preach to them. And my friend Jesus, he looked down from the portals of heaven and he saw us lost in our sin. He saw us condemned to hell. He saw us without hope. He saw us heading to a place of eternal damnation where the wrath of God would be poured down as for all of eternity. And he said, I'll become one of them. He came down to here. He came down to earth. He lived amongst us. And he loved us. He loved us. And then they took him. 
They arrested him by night. Oh, I know you know the story. But sometimes we need to be reminded of just how much he loved us. They put a bag over his head and they punched him. They said, if you be the Christ, prophesy. Tell us who hit you. They spit in his face. They ripped the beard from him. They beat his back with a cat of nine tails. They threw rocks at him in the streets. They drove nails through his wrists and his ankles. And they lifted him up between heaven and earth. And the most painful act of all, God God looked ahead in time. And he looked back in time. He looked at every human who had ever lived. He gathered together the sins of the world. Can I make that more specific? You see, Romans 5.8 says that, But God commendeth His love toward us. Toward us. But I like better where it says uh, that He died for me. You see, God didn't just die for the sins of the world while He did that. God became your sin. Can I remind you of something? If you'd been the only human being ever to live and you'd sin... Christ would have come down to earth and found a way to become every one of your sins to buy you back to God. You cannot properly love God until you understand just how much He loves you. You can't do it. You can't do it. Letter C, notice my salvation. My salvation. Look with me in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 1. John addresses the recipients of his letter. This way he says, can we read the first three uh, words out loud together? Ready? My little children. Turn over to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18. Again, ready? First three words out loud together. Ready? My little children. You know what I am? Because Jesus Christ died for me and I've accepted that. I'm his child. I'm his child. Boy, I was... um, I was a child of the devil. I was born that way. And Jesus Christ, through His grace, reached down into the slimiest, most disgusting pit there could be. And He lifted me up. And He washed me off. And He adopted me. I'm a child. I'm a child of the King of kings and Lord of lords. John 1.12 reminds us that as many as receive Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. Can I tell you tonight why I'm saved? I'm saved because the King of the universe looked down at a little nobody and He said He's unlovable, but I'm going to love Him anyway. He's covered in sin and I hate sin. But I'm going to separate Him from His sin and I'm going to love Him anyway. The old songwriter Isaac Watts put it this way, he said, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. See from His head, His hands, His feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing 
so divine, demands my soul, demands my life, demands my all. I've been saved. I've been saved. I've been given a home in heaven. Today I'm here to tell you that it isn't just that God loved me singularly on the cross. He didn't just love me on April 8th of 1988 when I got saved as a four-year-old boy. He didn't just love me then. But can I just tell you today that every single day of my life, God showers down His love of blessings all over me, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour. I have the love of God poured all over me. You know what I feel like? I feel like that, that doll in the arms of that four-year-old girl getting loved on and loved on and loved on and loved on. You know what I want to do? You know what that makes me want to do? That makes me want to love God back. Point number one, we looked at loving my Lord. Point number two, you guessed it, loving His labor. Loving His labor. I skipped letter D there, my sentiment, I apologize. Number two, loving his labor. A little boy declared that he loved his mother with all of his strength. He was asked to explain what he meant by with all of his strength. He said, well, I'll tell you. He said, we live up on the fourth floor of our apartment building and our home is heated by coal. And my dad uh, has passed and the coal is down in the basement. And so in order uh, to keep the house warm, I know my mother is busy and I know she's not very strong. So I see that the coal uh, hold is never empty. I lug the coal up. It takes all my strength to get it up here. Now, isn't that loving my mother with all my my strength. Isn't that loving my mother with all my strength? And I'm here today to tell you that, I'll remind you that God has, God has told us we're to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We're to love Him with all our strength. Before I get into the A, B, C, and D, let me just uh, insert very quickly here. As a young boy sitting in churches hearing the Bible preached, watching how the love of God had changed my parents' life, changed my dad's life specifically. My parents helped me to understand at a very young age just how much I was loved by God. There began to be a fire that burned down in my chest as a young man. If Christ can die for me, then I can live for Him. If Christ can die for me, then God, it's all on the altar. I'll be that living sacrifice Romans 12 talks about. If you can leave the portals of heaven, if you can become my sin, if you can salvage me from the flames of hell and give me a mansion in the skies, Lord, you name it, I want to do it to pay you back. And I'll never pay you back. But I want to give it my best shot. You see, my decision making from the time I was a young boy was bent toward and geared to being what I am today. Who I hung out with as a teenager. What books I surrounded myself with. Where I was at uh, uh, when there was a teen activity. 
where I chose to go and, and receive my higher education. What I chose as a career path. The young lady I chose to marry. All of these decisions were geared for, aimed toward giving my life to Jesus and serving Him in the capacity that I do. Now, God does not call everyone into the pastorate. God does not call everyone into full-time Christian service. And I'm not here to try to to conjole you or twist your arm into being something God's not uh, wanting you to be. But I will say this, whether or not God calls you to get a paycheck from a church for full-time Christian service, God calls every Christian to full-time Christian service. You say, but pastor... I'm too busy to serve the Lord. Then again, you don't really understand how much God loves you. You just really don't get it. The deeper you understand that, the more it propels you into wanting to do something for Jesus. The mechanism that makes your pastor's heart beat as a Christian man is the understanding of just how much God loves me. And if you don't want to do anything for Jesus then my friend, you need to go back and study in depth just how much God loves you. Here in 1 John chapter 4, we find, I see, four different types of labors that God has called the Christian to. Letter A, notice, a labor of perfecting. A labor of perfecting. Look down at verse number 12 of 1 John 4. The Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected, is perfected in us. Look down with me at uh, verse number 17. The Bible says there, Herein is our love made perfect, that we uh, may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love. Perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He hath he that feareth is not made perfect in love. And so here we see in verse 12 and then 17 and 18, this idea of having the love of God perfected in us. I do believe that a big reason why many Christians are too busy sitting on the sidelines instead of in the race is they have a very twisted and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and they misunderstand very largely what love really is all the way down to its core. This morning we talked about the parable of the sower uh, who went out to sow the wheat and the, 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 the thief came in or the bad people came in and sowed the tares among the wheat. And I do believe that in the heart of many Christians there are tares sowed amongst the wheat of what love is. You see, for everything God has, Satan has a counterfeit. And God is the creator of love. Love says, I'll give. Satan comes along and he says, I have another version. It's also four letters. And it also starts with the letter L. We'll call it lust. But we'll sell it as love. Love says, I'll give. Lust says, I want. Lust says, I'll take. Says, I'll take. We grew up with Hollywood telling us what love is. But the version of love from Hollywood... Almost every time is not love, it's lust. Or it's some combination of the two twisted together. If you've grown up in any sort of a broken home, then you've grown up watching parents who want more than, want for themselves more than they want to give to the other. And what is that? That's lust mixed in with love. You know why we need our love perfected? Because every single person here tonight by your sin nature and by a sinful culture around you, 
Every person in here tonight, in some way or another, your definition of love is not perfect. It's just not perfect. And God says this, and through the hand of John, He says this, that His love needs to be perfected in us. Perfected in us. This is a process. This is a process that takes time. You see, you ought to labor to better understand how much God loves you and then His calling on your life to love others. Boy, God's a genius, isn't He? When He wrote in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, what was the second commandment? Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You know, God knew that as you begin to feel and experience His love, you need an outlet to give it to other people. Because you just wouldn't be able to contain it all inside of you. You get so filled with love and well up inside you, and it's just got to come pouring out somewhere. And God says, learn my love and then love me back and then pour it out all over the world around you. It's a process. Understanding the love of God and allowing it to be perfect in us and through us, it's, it's a process, but it's also a study. It's a study. Sometime back we did a study through the book of, uh, or rather through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the charity chapter. And we uh, took four sermons and we looked at all the attributes of charity. And uh, i got to tell you, that did a whole lot to better your pastor's understanding of what charity is and, and, and even what love is. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that the person who does the teaching, the person who does the preparing, the person who does the studying is much more blessed than the person who just receives it. How many of you know that to be true? Alright, here's where I'm going with this. If you sat through those series of sermons, great. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening intently. Thank you for even taking notes. But it won't bless your heart the way it's blessed my heart until you get into the Bible and study it. Husbands, you've been commanded to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Have you really studied what biblical love is? Can you really say that you have prepared to be married if you've not done a deep study in the Bible on what God's love is? That's your number one responsibility as a husband. It's to love your wife. You say, but she's cantankerous. She's cranky. She's moody. Her memory is perfect on everything I've ever done wrong. And she can recite it back to me Like she has it written on the back of her hand or something. Love her. Love her. You say, but she's hard to love. Work work harder at it. You've been commanded to love your enemies. Oh boy. That's tough. Pastor, you don't know my set of enemies. They're fierce. Get in the Bible and study love. Look, if the, if the two greatest commandments in the entire Bible both begin with the word love, then don't you think we should probably learn how to love? Don't you think we should probably get in the Bible and learn how much God loves us? It's a process. It's a study. It is a meditation. The other thing I have written down here is that this, this perfecting of love in us, it is a rejection of Satan's version 
oftentimes when I'm watching uh, uh, TV uh, with my, my children, whether, even if it's just a simple cartoon. And i got to say, we like the old shows like the Andy Griffith Show and Leave It to Beaver and Father Knows Best. Those are great. That, that's uh, generally wholesome TV to watch. But you can even see some of Satan's antics being slipped into even some of these old shows. And you know what I do? I will pause the show, because you can do that in 2017, amen? I will pause the show and I'll say, see right there? See what they're trying to do? Boy, I call Satan out every time I see it. I call him out. I say, that's not right. I quickly identify it, and then we work to reject it. Work to reject it. Letter, B, letter A, it is a labor of perfecting. Once you understand how much God loves you, it propels you to want to labor for Him. And the very first thing we ought to do is labor to have His love perfected in us and through us to a wor- world that is hurting and needs that love. Letter B, we see a labor of propitiation. Look down at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 with me. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible says, Here in His love, not that we loved God, but that... He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, generally in my alliteration, I try not to use words that are highfalutin and big and fancy. Amen? I have a couple rules with alliteration. If it's stretching the word to fit the passage or stretching the passage to fit the word, then I'll throw alliteration out the window. If it's a word people don't know, I'll just throw alliteration out the window. But uh, this is a Bible word, and I think it's a Bible word that if you've gone to church any amount of time, you need to know what it means. Can I confess something to you tonight? I'm not a priest, so you don't come to me and confess anything. And I'm certainly not supposed to confess anything to you, per se. Amen? But I'm going to make a confession tonight. I had an idea of what propitiation meant before this message. But I didn't really know what propitiation was until I studied for this message. And i got to tell you, it's really good. It's really good. Write this down if you're taking notes. Propitiation is the act of appeasing wrath and winning over the favor of the offended. It is the act of appeasing wrath and winning over the favor of the offended. So now that relationship can be restored. You know, we've been called to do the same thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 17 with me. This is a verse many of us are familiar with. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now, let's look at verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Let me put it to you like this. Jesus Christ said, okay, you remember how I stepped between you and God and I absorbed His wrath and I propitiated on your behalf with God so I could win over the offended and tie that relationship with you? Okay, go and do that likewise. I'm going to give you the ministry of propitiation. I'm going to give you the ministry of reconciliation. You know what, as I find, as I go uh, uh, up and down the streets of Stratford in the greater area, and I, I try to, to convince people to trust Christ, you know what I find? I find a bunch of people who are offended at God. Now, their offense, their offense is wrong. Their offense is on a false premise. But you know what I've learned is that their perception is their reality. They look at God... They don't understand why He's let certain things happen in their life. 
there's anger being poured out from them toward God. God wants you and I to step in the middle and absorb that wrath and show them the love of God. And then put our arm around them and help them to see, no, 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 your concept of God has been all wrong. He loves you. And then we walk that sinner to the steps of the person who is labeled as love. And we reconcile. We propitiate. A ministry, a labor of propitiation. Letter C, I see here a labor of proclaiming. Look down at chapter 4 of 1 John, chapter 4, uh, uh, and verse through the passage. You're just blowing through the passage. You would almost miss the fact that, uh, that John is telling us that we need to testify of the gospel, and here's why. Because he speaks about it so matter of fact. Well, if you've been saved, if you've been loved on by God, surely you would want to tell everybody about that, right? You, that's almost the, uh, you, you almost can just, just sense that coming off the pages of Scripture. It says there, he said, we have seen and do testify. It's not that you should go testify, it's that if you're saved as a Christian, it's just natural for you to testify. You just ought to want to tell everybody. I gotta be honest tonight. I have watched as um, I've been a part of church from, from birth. Uh, my first Sunday in church was in the nursery at First Baptist in Hammond. And I've been in church more days in my life than I haven't been. I think if I, need, if I put a bed upstairs, I could just about live here. My wife is keeping me from doing that, amen? I don't think she's in favor of that. Neither are my kids. And I, I do give plenty of time to my family. Don't, don't uh, take that the wrong way. But here's what I've seen in church, and here's what I've just been amazed at. I've been a part of churches where the pastor will preach and preach and preach about sharing their faith, sharing the faith. And then there's just so little participation in the pew. White Oak Baptist Church, let me say that this church is above average when it comes to that. There's a higher percentage of you that are out sharing your faith than in most churches I've been a part of. But nonetheless, there are some who will sit and hear it talked about they're just not going to do it. And I just want to look at those of you who are that way tonight, and I just want to ask you a question. Do you really understand how much God loved you? How awful of a person would I be if I found the cure to cure all cancer and I sat on it? And I didn't tell anyone about it. And I held it. My friend, the world has the cancer of sin. And you're sitting on the answer. Do you understand how much God loved you? Aren't you glad somebody told you? What if someone had not testified to you of the grace of God? You'd spend eternity in all hell. And my friend, if you truly love God, cause and effect, the very natural next step is just to want to tell everybody about it. Here shortly, we're going to begin a a class on Wednesday nights that will take place at the same time as the preaching service. 
class that's called the Soul Winners Club, and we're going to train people on how to share their faith. That class will provide the knowledge, it will provide the how-to. But can I tell you this, there's one thing that class will not provide, and that's the zeal. Outside of preaching, I really can't do much to light a fire under you. But will you stop and think that your coworkers and your neighbors and the complete stranger that you pass on the street and in the store, there's a very good chance most of them are dying and going to hell. Are you just going to walk on by and not tell them? Say, but pastor, that, that, that's uncomfortable for me to do that. My friend, if that's your attitude, you've missed the whole sermon tonight. You've missed the whole message tonight. I remember, and this isn't about tooting my horn, let me make this really clear, but I remember as a young man going off to some Christian camps, hearing some red-hot preaching about how much God loved me. And I remember a fire being lit in my soul. We had a a teen soul-winning program at the particular church I was in there in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I was only 12, but I went to the youth pastor and said, can I please go soul-winning with the teenagers? I, I just have to tell people. By the time I turned 13 in my, my 12th year of life, I, I, I counted that I led over 300 people through this, the sinner's prayer. You say, Pastor, are you elevating yourself up? No, I'm trying to show you that you and I, that ought to be every Christian. That ought to just be normal. Like you have to breathe air to live. You have to share the gospel in order to reciprocate God's love back to Him. God, you love me and i got to tell everybody about you. A labor of proclaiming. It isn't that someone is standing over you like a taskmaster and beating you saying, Go soul winning. Testify. Go soul winning. No, it's that there's this love, this inspiration in your chest that says, If He can love me that much, then I'll do whatever I can to please Him. Letter D, we see a labor of pardon. A labor of pardon. Look down with me at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. The Bible says there, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And there's a hundred different points you could make uh, out of here, but let me just draw one out right here. God says there's no excuse to hate another Christian. None. None. I heard someone say one time, uh, I was dealing with some cantankerous Christians at one point in my life and having a hard time getting along with them. And my father actually quoted this to me. He said, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. Some people are just hard to love, aren't they? Some, of, some people are just very hard to get along with. Sometimes people even hurt us. And they mistreat us. They don't show us the love of God. I don't have the passage here in front of me and the hour's getting late anyway. But do you remember in the New Testament where Jesus said, anybody can love someone that loves them. That's easy. Well, it's not the job of the Christian to love the lovable. It's the job of the Christian to love the unlovable. A love of pardon. Let me just finish with this thought. I'm closing my Bible. Could it be that 
you're having a hard time laboring for the Lord because the root of bitterness has grown up in you and it is defiling your understanding of what love is. Something happened to you in your past. Maybe it's even someone sitting across the room from you now. Well, I'm not talking to him. I'm not talking to her. That person walks in the room and you just want to get out of there. My friend, that is a spirit that prevents the love of God from growing and being harvested in our life. And God says, forgive, forgive. You say, Pastor, but that's hard. Not for the Christian it isn't. Not for the Christian it's not. If you're having a hard time forgiving someone, you need to get down on your knees and you need to spend time daily in your heart and in your mind at the foot of the cross looking up and seeing your Savior who became your sin and died in your place and looked down at you and said, I forgive you. If you've not been forgiven, it's very hard to forgive someone who's hurt you. But if you have been truly forgiven by the cross, then there is no person that you can't forgive. There is no person you can't forgive. John here tells us, he says, that you are not to hate your brother. You're not to hold offense in your heart. You're to labor to forgive. I think of the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said, Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. You know what he was teaching us there is that every day we're to pray to forgive those who've wronged us and keep a tender heart in that direction. That little girl's hugging that doll against her pudgy little arms. And she's saying, I love them, and I love them, and I love them. But they just don't love me back. Christian God's loving you, and loving you, and loving you. Are you loving Him back? Are you laboring for Him? Are you giving your heart to Him? Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this evening. Heads bowed and eyes closed this evening.